Hi, everybody. This is producer Robert. This episode of No Kidding Me Too was recorded in front of a live audience at Gotham Comedy Club using Gotham Comedy Club's PA system as part of the New York Comedy Festival in New York City. So the sound is going to be a little different than the remote studio that you're used to. As we come out of the music, you'll hear comedian Regina DeChico as she comes out of her warm-up and introduces Joe and Daniela. We had a lot of fun putting this together. We hope you enjoy. Are you ready for the big show? Are you ready to headline this event? Yes! Oh my goodness! So excited! So excited that you guys are here. Guys, because this is, you're gonna witness, this is the first time ever for the live taping of the No Kidding Me Too podcast. Now the host, they've never done this before. They've never done this before, right? But their producers thought like, sure, why the fuck not? Let's try it out. And why not let's try it out in front of a live audience? And that's you guys. So the whole time, guys, give them all the love. Have all your reactions. You're not in a podcast at home. You're in a podcast in person. Right? So you have, yes, you get excited. You get in the moment. We'll put our phones away when the show starts. So no kidding me too. It's a podcast about mental health issues and erasing the stigma of talking about mental dis-ease. Right? Which is amazing. Which is exactly what we need to be doing right now. Right? It's exactly why we're struggling to hang on. So this is exactly what we need to be doing. Right? Is it, is it appropriate for a comedy show? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, I think it might be. Will it get uncomfortable? Maybe it will. Are we gonna laugh through it? I think we are, right? So here's what's gonna, yes! Oh my goodness. So you guys, if you can listen to No Kidding Me Too on all the places you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, your toaster. That's what my note says, your toaster. Guys, if you're listening to podcasts on your poster, on your toaster, you need this podcast. Do you understand? If anyone is listening to their toaster, if you're listening to your toaster, tonight's about you. Do you know what I mean? It's really about you. I need you to listen to everything. Right, exactly. You've got, you got issues. So now everybody, I want to welcome to the stage. It is my absolute honor to welcome to the stage Joe Pantoliano and his daughter, Daniela Pantoliano. Everybody's a big head from Regina to Chico. I was nervous until I listened to her. Forget about it. Hi, Danny. Hi, Daddy. Well, we're going to start. We This is the first. I've been advocating for mental health issues uh, since I think uh, my diagnosis in 2008 mm -hmm. when I was doing uh, a movie after I was able to get out of my bedroom for 18 months, and um, I had to get an insurance policy. Uh, when you make a movie, they insure you. The insurance company bets that nothing's going to happen to you. So um, my lawyer called me up and said, if we have a little problem, uh, they're not going to insure you because you're taking an antidepressant. Um, so if you want to be in the movie, you have to sign a waiver. So if anything goes wrong, they're indemnified. And I said, well, that means that if I lost my mind for a, a day and a half, I'd be broke. I said, well, what about, you know, I have a, I have a issue with heart disease. I have a history of mental illness in my family. I have a history of heart disease. And so, um, you know, I'm taking uh, five milligrams of a statin. What happens if I have a heart attack? He said, no, fine. If you have a heart attack, fine. I said, so why are they discriminating against my brain? Why is it okay 
to the heart and not to the brain. And that's kind of got the ball. It pissed me off. I was pissed off. And that's uh, when we started No Kidding Me Too. And uh, No Kidding Me Too, people would say, what are you up to? You know, they would recognize me in the airports and, hey, Joey, uh, what are you up to? And I was doing a movie I made with Marcia Gay Harden about the effects of mental disease on the whole family. Somebody gets diagnosed, but it affects everybody. It affects the neighborhood. And, uh, and I'd say, well, they're making this movie about that. And they'd say, no kidding me to my mother, no kidding me to my brother. So that's how that began. And then uh, Danny uh, told me, no kidding me to Yeah, he did. In college. I was voted most outgoing, and then three months later, I was diagnosed with depression. So, you know, <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I this is something different for us. Yes. So this is going to be recorded. It's like George Carlin Live. This is like <laughs> mental health live. You have your mental disease. You're going to talk yep. now um, to our wonderful guests. And then it's going to be on the podcast, yep. uh, on the radio. Finally, you made it to the radio. Finally. <laughs> What's what's next? You say you say. Oh, oh yes. Oh, and since we're at a comedy club, we'll try to make sure you guys are entertained. I think you will be. I think we've proven that so far. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm nervous. I don't. I don't. Usually, I'm in my bed with no with no makeup on when I do these things. You're my daughter, so only five bucks. Okay, thanks, thanks. No, I think I can get through it. I did a shot of tequila before, so I'm thinking I'm okay. <laughs> so um, let's get our let's do it. Let's just bring them out. So who uh, you, 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 they're all here. They're all here. So say, yeah, say who's here? Jim Norton. Yeah, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Sanders. Yeah. Dean Edwards. Gary Coleman. Gary Coleman. Please come to the Hmm. Uh, this seating feels like it was done on purpose (laughs) also also why were there some people not clapping are you yeah waiting for more uh fame yeah is that it because if Seinfeld was here, you would have stopped clapping by right. now. Right? <laughs> right? They'd still be clapping. So the Carnegie Hall thing's already gone to you. Last night, sold out Carnegie Hall. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I didn't know this, but he won't stop telling me about it. <laughs> this is funny. Like, I didn't mean for us to both sit on this side. So this... <laughs> we went. I was being a gentleman, and I was like, "Oh, okay, we did that uh, by mistake on purpose." <laughs> it's set up like a chessboard now. <laughs> <laughs> that, guys, that was off the cuff. I didn't write that. I didn't write that. Good. All right. So, I was talking to Danny about like what questions I wanted to start this off with you guys, and one of the things that I have learned in in, in my life in my in my old age is that my wanting to be an actor, wanting to be in show business, uh, I wanted to get inside my mother's 12-inch black and white TV because I had this overwhelming dread 
feeling of dread by the time I was nine years old, I realized that someday I was going to die. And that there would never be any evidence that I ever existed. But if I could get inside the TV set, because I would watch the Million Dollar Movie, and I would see all these black and white characters, and I would say, she's hot, but she's dead. Yeah. Yes. He's you, dead. Yes. They're dead. There they are. They're still here. Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted that. But also, overwhelmingly, I was motivated by resentment. I'll show them I'm not a piece of shit. I'll show my mother. I'll show them I'm going to be successful. So I wanted to know if you guys, if anybody could relate to that. My career has proved that I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> I also think you should clarify because there are young people that are here and that'll see this that when you say black and white TV, it's not racial because <laughs> I know my kids have no idea that there's something that was called a black and white television. <laughs> it wasn't racially divided. It was just it was a lot cheaper. Um, <laughs> I think I think well, like, I'm so old. They didn't have color television. Right, right. Right, so I was his complexion back then. No. <laughs> I didn't know you were black until, you know, at that time everybody was colored. Right. Right? right? And then color television came, and it was black and white. Right. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> but I think we were all, I, I, I know for myself, um, when, when you watched television coming up, there was something exciting about, when you realized that, that there were people actually playing roles and acting, and, and you go back to school and you're like, oh, I could do that. It wasn't something you, like, I don't think when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I want to be a star. I was like, oh, I'd love to do what they do. And they get paid for it. You found out later. So so I think as as I grew um, as, a, as an entertainer, you do wind up with a slight chip on your shoulder because you have so many naysayers, right? That like in entertainment, whether it's comedy, whether it's uh, theater, whether it's television, Magic. Musician, magic. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there are uh, no one, most people are going to tell you you can't do it. And so there's there's something innately in, in all of us that made us say, nah, you know what, I want to do this and, and show I can do it, but I also want to prove everybody, every teacher that told you, nah, you know, you, no, you need to, you know, work for transit or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with work for transit if anybody in here. <laughs> But you know what I mean? So I, I I did have a slight chip on my shoulder. I still, we were just talking about, uh, you know, he just did Carnegie Hall. There's still people that, that will yeah. doubt or that are doubting him, you know? And, and that's, I mean. No, my, my mother wanted to know if there were any celebrities right. at, the, at the show last night. And, and I mean, the subtext of everything we say on stage basically is, mommy, look, look, mommy, 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 look, look. It's just the diving board over and over again our entire lives. <laughs> I think that I do comedy <laughs> because I want to bring joy. <laughs> no, it's just attention. I like attention. Like uh, yeah. I wanted attention when I was a kid. I feel like I don't exist if I'm not getting noticed. And that's really all it is. It's the thing that makes you feel like you exist. Wish I had a funnier reason. <laughs> so I'm the only one up here that didn't like my mother? <laughs> I think you loved your mother. I love my mother, but I didn't like her sometimes. Um, 
when I would, when I would go to work or so go to parties, you know, I would come home exhausted because I felt like that was the work. You know, completely. Uh, anybody relate to that? I, I don't like parties. Um, I'm not comfortable at parties. Like, I'm just, I, I don't feel like I fit in. I, I never know what to say to people at parties. I'm a dud at a party. <laughs> I suck at a party. I just kind of stand there in the corner quietly. And it's not because I think it's intriguing to be shy. I just don't like <laughs> parties. They can be very overwhelming. You yeah. To, you know, people constantly ask me, especially if you are someone that struggles with depression and mental health, people constantly, how are you? How are you? You just have to keep maybe lying sometimes. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's great. What are you up to? What's new? Yeah. Oh, you know, it's just doing all of the things and you're just like dying. <laughs> In my case, I didn't know I was depressed until I got everything I thought was going to make that feeling go away. Yes. So I, yes. I, I thought that when I, you know, if I was successful, if I got this, if I got that, you know, then this, whatever this was, unconscious of it, that this feeling would go away. And the closer I got to it, uh, it was more prevalent. Yeah, from, from as long as I can remember, I thought that there was something I could do that would be good enough to make me feel good about myself. And I would get these things. And I was like, no, oh, well, I just need to work harder, get more. And then you did a, a documentary, right? And I was like, oh, I was convinced I'd be happy with Joe's career, with his life. He's not happy with it. Then I read Springsteen's book. And at 58 years old, Springsteen couldn't get out of bed. And at the time, he was Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and, and nobody worked harder. Nobody was better looking, charming, talented. And I was like, oh, there's no end to this. It's biological. I need to go into the hospital. Well, there's, I mean, you know, Sinatra was bipolar. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was, uh, was uh, what they called melancholia. Yes. Yes. And somehow I think that a lot of people started to demonize because not, you know, it's like we're oversensitive. You know, we're, we're everything, we, we, we're like sponges. And it's like everybody's laughing, but there's that one person in the corner that's not laughing, and that's who I remember. Um, <laughs> I focus on the person not laughing. Yeah, I focus, um, and I kill them. <laughs> 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 but it, I always thought it was very interesting that so many people in the entertainment business are people that feel that way because they're drawn to a business that's filled with rejection. Like why, why do as people who might struggle with mental health, why is that the business that we're drawn to? Is it because if you succeed, it's like such a big success and everybody... You know, they, they call it, you know, a lot of people, that's how they, they, they describe it, but it's not rejection, it's an opportunity. Yeah. And you go, yo, it's only you didn't get the job, but it was always, like in my head anyway, it was like I wanted to go to get in the room yeah. and give the best I could get. Yeah. yeah. And so if I didn't get the job, at least I gave my best. At least I got in the room. So I never looked at it as rejection. Well, but Joey, let me, let me ask you, were you always like that or did maturity um from auditioning and going in the rooms did you all when you first um started acting and going on auditions did you feel like oh this is a great opportunity then or did so many rejections because I, I i think i agree i'm the same way now but I, if i'm honest when when you 
know, the first the first five years of auditioning and you might book two commercials and maybe one, you know, one line in a film, you know, that there's the frustration of constantly getting passed over because you're right. It's not it's not necessarily a no, it's just they said yes to the one person compared to the hundreds or thousands of other people that were were auditioning for the parts. And when you when you don't get something, when you don't get the response that you're looking for, which is booking over time, um, it takes a certain intestinal fortitude to eventually say, you know what, I know it's not me. They might, the producer might have known someone, they owed a favor, the director might have had someone in mind, but they had to go through the process of auditioning people. So when you first started, do you think you had that, that same mentality that you do now, that it was an opportunity? Well, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a bipolar existence. Okay. Because you're going in there, right? Yeah. And you got that, and that feels great. You yeah. You do a good job. Then you get a callback. Right. You're getting closer to the job, and then I always choke up. And it's like, I just want to be able to do what I was able to do the last time. Um, but, you know, it's like I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I would go in. Um, eventually never thinking I get the job. And you know, for the first seven years, I pretty much said to myself, I'll give it myself 10 years. If I'm not making a living in 10 years, then I'll do something else. So for the first seven years, I made $1,000, seven years. You know, so I was a waiter. You know, I, I, I had other, I, I, I was busy. I was busy. I was going to acting class to just give me something to do. Right. But, um, no, I, I, but the high of going, walking out of the room, and then getting the call from the well, that's the old days. See, I'm 70, so <laughs> the agents would call. They like you between you and another guy. Um, but, uh, I was, um, that, that, you know, that what if, like, what if was always, uh, exciting, and then they'd let down. Think about stand up is great, too. You can talk about it on stage. It's so right. great. Like I just to go up and emotionally vomit <laughs> on stage, and like I, I get away with stuff that like no accountant or attorney can get away with yeah. talking about. Like the things they're all real too. Um, I actually exaggerate. I make them probably less awful than they really are. <laughs> but it's, that's the best part about stand up is you can go on stage and really tell on yourself. Um, and sometimes people laugh, and sometimes they're uncomfortable. But it feels really good to throw it up on stage and just kind of leave it. So I hear your your fork clinking back there. Sorry, I'm talking about throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a documentary about uh, a, a comedy group in Toronto where they were taking people with schizophrenia, yes. you know, and uh, and they were teaching them to put together five minutes and then go up and the open mic. And a lot of these people, their whole world changed, wow. you know, that, that in terms of their their ability to be functional again. Were they were they good comics though? <laughs> we're, we're we're all good comics. Okay. <laughs> but but it is therapy. That's 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 the beauty of um being a stand-up specifically in comparison to all the other forms of entertainment is that we are we 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 are the writer, director, producer, and performer. And so the the high of of getting on stage and 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 hitting, you know, there's almost no better feeling than a joke that you you know, thought about and then sporadically, right before you went on stage, a word clicked and you said, let me try it that way and you hit it and the crowd responds. 
that people always say it's better than sex. I don't know that, but <laughs> but it's it's a it's well, an that's longer. <laughs> it definitely lasts longer. And um and to me, the best the best feeling is coming off stage and comics that you respect, Yamanika or or, or or Gary or Jim saying, oh yo, you know that was good, you know, because because then you feel validated. We with with. With stand-up, you get immediate gratification. Whereas if you're on a film set or if you're on a TV show, you're shooting something and it might wind up in the can for months, if not years, and then people get to see it. You know, what we do is immediate. I think that that's you, you Danny, you said earlier what makes us do it. I think there's an innate draw, we're all drawn to it, it, it immediately. Yeah. Well, let me say, because I know you've been talking for the both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I just I needed five minutes to know that I could sit in this seat and it wasn't gonna pop. <laughs> I felt you about only making a thousand dollars, right, in seven years. And was that because you've been working since 1937? Because you know the exchanges. That's not a thousand dollars. It's a thousand dollars. <laughs> Don't tell your wife I'm touching you. I um, I don't know. I have a little bit of, I think, both. Um, I guess, yeah, I like attention. I'm also somebody who doesn't like attention. I don't like people looking at me. I don't like to be in crowds. I got into theater um, before I got into stand-up because people thought I was crazy. <laughs> and uh, you know, I used to talk to myself as a kid for a long, long time. And I have a nervous eye tick that happens. So they were like, let's give her something creative to do. Uh, and that, that was my story. I mean, my family paid a lot of attention to me. I love being on stage to be away from them. Because <laughs> my family is very religious. So sometimes they won't come to the shows, which is great. So I'm like, you don't want to come. I'm going to be talking about a lot of dicks, a lot of dicks. Just, <laughs> So many dicks. <laughs> I hate the family being there. We were talking about this in the dressing room. I was on the radio one time, and I was talking about golden showers. Oh, um, <laughs> oh yeah, in depth. And uh, I got a call from my father, and it was a really weird moment. He goes, so your mother and I were listening to the radio. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, we, we heard you were just joking about that. And I'm like, yeah. I was just, <laughs> I, it was a weird moment where we both knew that I wasn't joking, but he needed me to co-sign <laughs> that I was just joking. And I gave it to him. I'm like, oh, tell mom I'm a kidder. You know. <laughs> That's funny. I did a, a joke. Um, I did a nasty set for the degenerates on Netflix. So everything was like nasty. And uh, I did this. I mean, I, I don't talk about sex that much. And even if I did, fucking cares. Because people are having sex, that's how you guys got here. Um, but I did a bit about uh, a guy, you know, believing whatever he was doing on my face. And so, <laughs> so I, there's a part where I go, it was like an unholy experience, but it was a holy experience because I had to look up to God, like I was praying as his penis came towards my face. And my grandmother called me and she was like, 
Did you really pray? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah. Have you ever done this? <laughs> so weird. Look at how your daughter's looking at you right now. This is. A <laughs> this actually, my my. Uh, I wish it was uncomfortable for me to talk about sex with my parents. It's it was always a. I knew everything that was going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now look at his face. <laughs> no, no, you guys, you guys never hid the fact that you had sex. Like it was just, you know, I'm gonna go upstairs. Don't, you know. My yep. mom's like, all right, give me five minutes. Okay. <laughs> My parents would always say, Jim, hold the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, well, here, here's a question since we're talking about parents. Um, uh, we always think that, you know, mental health, it always stems from your childhood, how you're raised, your environmental factors, um, how your parents raise you. How, for each of you, did your family deal with feeling emotions, not just mental health, depression, just like showing emotion, crying if you were, you know, sad? Uh, or if you hurt your, you know, especially for the guys, you know, they say, you know, don't cry, you're a strong man, don't cry, boys, don't cry. Um, what did your each of your parents, how did they deal with that? And then how do you think that's affected each of you today? Uh, as far as, like, did, did they allow me to cry? or Well, did they allow you to cry? Did yeah. you know that mental health was a thing? Which were they... Did, you notice that they maybe had issues or did they just hide it like hide it like it felt mom's normal. not depressed she just drinks right thing. right it felt normal the whole thing in the neighborhood felt normal. i was a weird little kid though i was very sexually active with other kids like so i was a weird <laughs> kid you know what i mean so i didn't look at my parents as anything but kind of normal and they had me in therapy when i was 12. um i also have I ticks I, I you know i look like poorly spliced film i mean i'm always <laughs> You know, I mean, believe me, I'm a disaster. Uh, so, I've, I've, you know, mental health for me has always kind of been in my mind, but I didn't think anybody else noticed. But I'm sure they did. I, uh, my family was like emotional. Like everybody felt everything. They talked about everything. Um, you know, I, I grew up. I, my parents separated when I was a kid, so my father went and had another family. And I mean, I don't want to say it like that. I don't want to <laughs> but he went and had other children. But I was raised the only child, so around adults. So I instantly knew, like at five, that I was better than other kids. <laughs> uh, to the point where, like, I thought different than them. I didn't want to get in the mud with them. I just preferred adults. So I always had like adult conversations. People would say I was old soul. You know, things like that. I mean, now I'm the age that I am. I'm old. But I was like young old. And, you know, I I think when people would look at me and go, Yamanika, she never shows, like, emotion when everything is going wrong. So if, I, if people would always look at me as the barometer to when things were bad. Because if I cried, then something was going on. But I would do the best I could not to cry in a situation or get upset and sort of take care of everyone. So I think, I don't know, I think a lot of maybe performers are people like that, which is why we take on a lot of energy to take these characters, because every character you do, even when you're on stage, you're playing a character of yourself doing stand-up, um, and like show this everyone the okay person, 
that's not broken, even though you're broken, so that everybody that's broken that's watching you can like find the parts to heal themselves. So there's a lot of sacrificing yourself so that everybody else can feel okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. No, they don't have to. It was if it touched you. <laughs> Fuck them. <Yeah. laughs> You're in a mental health that, podcast. Right? It's yeah. okay to be the only one clapping. <laughs> it's okay to look a little crazy. We're all fucked up. <laughs> no, I that I really relate to that too. That's the role I took on myself when I was little. Like, daddy, you know, is not okay. Other people aren't okay, so I have to be okay. I try not to take any of it too seriously. Like, I, I know it's a heavy subject, yeah. but maybe, again, maybe it's the job that we're in, but nothing surprises me with people. Like, nothing, no amount of crazy. I know probably, I want to say six or seven comics who killed themselves over the years. Um, you know what I mean? Like, we all know people who are depressed and suicidal. So I, I find all of it uh, worthy of being made fun of because I've lived it and I've had the depression. And I, I, I try to take it too seriously or look at it too heavy because... You know, it's just overwhelming if you if you look at it like with just two, you know, you kind of have to look at it with disdain and make fun of it. And that's how I treat it. Well, you know, the idea is that it is, it's cool to be out there. And the, and the benefit of, of, um, of a dis-ease, you know, an emotional dis-ease that actually I was able to turn into a career. Yep. You know, so there, so there, there are actually benefits. Um, so it was always easier for me to be on stage than it was to be in real life. You know, the, uh, on stage in between action and cut, I knew who I was and who I wanted. I, I figured out uh, ways that how I could get it, and then I'd get another chance to do it. I'd do it again. I love that. Um, uh, the, the, the thing is, is that the whole point of, of uh, No Kidding Me Too is that when I was diagnosed, I felt like I hit the lottery. I felt like, wait a minute, I thought it was a character defect. Yes. I thought I was broken yes. and it was my fault. And then I discovered that this is something that you can work on. That's why I loathe the term mental illness because it sounds permanent. Yeah. So it's an emotional diseasiness that I'm living with. Like when mommy was in a bad mood, they say, oh, don't go in there, mommy's in a bad mood. Well, moods change, you know, so you're okay, this is, this is what it's like in the present. So that, the idea of talking about it, so that it becomes cool and trendy, and it's becoming more and more so, more and more so like Springsteen, if he'd have written this book 10 years yes. ago. You know, yes, and the athletes, see, when I was growing up, I thought, I'll be an athlete, it'll get people off my back about being soft, and, and I mean, this is obnoxious, but in the 70s, if you weren't good at sports, it, you were homosexual as a boy. And if you were good at sports as a girl, you were homosexual. You couldn't really, you couldn't really win. And so I worked every day from, from dawn till dusk on jump shots, thinking I'll get good enough at basketball to get everybody off my tail for being soft and, and crying so much. And then, and I also had a dad who didn't mean it. He just happened to get in a lot of fights growing up in the thirties, literally in the Bronx, where if you were Jewish, you had to fight every day. And so I always felt soft in comparison to him. I was running away from fights all the time. I was getting my ass handed to me in fights. But in basketball, they had this rule where if you hit somebody really hard, they would stop the game. 
and let, and let you make shots, and and so that that's what drew me to that sport. <laughs> and, but it was just that, and also you got attention, and and other guys didn't think you were pussy. It was just there were so many great things with with basketball, but eventually the and then I got a football scholarship and thought, now I'm a man, I feel good. And I felt terrible. And that's when I that's when I, I met my reckoning as far as mental illness. I got freshman year at football camp. They sent me to a therapist because I, I couldn't get out of bed. And and he was like, Oh yeah, you're depressed. You should quit this team. And I'm like, Well no, then then I'm gay again. <laughs> that's why that's why it's so important for people to understand like perspective. Because you're not looking at yourself, you're inside yourself, and then we're looking at you. <laughs> like, you know, for real, like, you barely cleared the door downstairs, you're so tall. You, you know, I'm seeing his act is super masculine. And uh, <laughs> I think the only thing that's soft about you is when you go, <laughs> my glorious hair. <laughs> you know, but, you, you know, it's like people see one thing, I get it a lot, especially as a black woman, as a big black woman, because everybody thinks, especially white women, you guys have to calm down. You think I'm a spirit animal, and I'm not. <laughs> and like all this, oh, I feel so bad today. Me too, bitch. Now, um, you know, but it's what people see, like the, 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 the exterior. And I think even when we go on stage, whether it's comedy, whether it's, you know, uh, acting, there is something you're putting on because you can't go in front of people what you consider weak. I remember I was just about to do a show. I was dating this guy, sort of like loosely, maybe loosely dating him. And, uh, but dating, there were boundaries. There was, we, I remember saying certain things that we weren't supposed to do, but he didn't remember. And, uh, I told him, I said, if you want to be free of this or be in a relationship, just let me know. We were comics. So it was kind of like, let's, uh, not my last one. You know, no, not no. It's not that one. No, I don't know. <laughs> we all fuck comics, so don't look at me like I'm the only one fucking comic. We all, everybody is like, well, Dean's happily married, but we all fucking comics. So um, he kept trying to keep me away from the the showroom. He was like, oh, go sit over here, and I was like, no, I want to be in the showroom, want to get the vibe. And this girl comes up to him and kisses him, like, but like, it wasn't like a pet. It was like, you know, I heard like. R&B playing and shit, and, <laughs> you know, and, and the sunlight was coming down on her, and I was like, oh, this is like a thing thing, and he didn't tell me, and it's it's fine, but it it took me, I was unaware of it, so I like started crying, and I remember I went into the, the ladies room, and all these women, it was a lot of black women, and it was like, girl, what happened, because you know, we beat a motherfucker up, and I remember I had to like, I had to absorb all these tears because I was like, I'm about to go in front of these women and perform and I can't let them think I don't have my shit together. Um, so I was just like, oh no, my contact, <laughs> my eye, you know, and I had on glasses at the time, but you know, I was like, ah, oh, I had a double contact with, you know, but we always do that. We always like think about like everyone's perception of us. So I don't think it's necessarily even like, it's the person that's not laughing or not responding. It's just like, damn, I'm giving you everything and you got the nerve to sit there and not be gracious enough to respond that I would even walk on a stage or I would even get on a set and perform and act like it's no big fucking deal. And it's like, well, what the fuck are you doing? 
right? That's really what it is. So, you know. When you're on a set, you're not supposed to laugh, but then they fuck up the cake. Well, sure, yeah. No, I, <laughs> yes, absolutely. At least I'm doing this. What the fuck are you doing? That's a great opening line when you walk on stage. <laughs> Where are we? I don't know. Talking to I mean, should we ask somebody? Uh, to, yes? Of course. Thank you all so much for drawing attention to this important issue. I just have a question for um, Gary. First of all, oh. last night was fantastic. Oh, See, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> fucking Jill Brown. Yeah. This yeah. stunned by you. Stunned. I tweeted no offense yeah, to yeah, Carl. No, I saw family, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, oh, oh thank. Oh, my God. But I wanted to ask you because when I have friends who are sad and we sort of become the identified patient in our family, but yeah. afraid to seek help. I always recommend your HBO special, The Great Crash. Uh -huh. And it had such a joyous feeling ending. I wish your mom was my mom. Oh, I just want to say, man. but I wanted to ask you, has it been a straight trajectory since? Yes. Or it, I mean, words, yeah, thank, thank God. I, I, I had, I lost my dog and, and, uh, I had grief and then I started blaming myself and I recognized it. The first time I ever was, was proactive as far as my medication and my treatment, because I had, I'd been so far down. So I, I recognized it and I went to my psychiatrist and said, why don't we up your, your uh, duloxetine, Cymbalta, by 20 milligrams. And in a few days, I, I was still sad about my dog, but I wasn't like, I should have I fed him better. I should have exercised him more or something like that. Yeah, it was, yeah. So I didn't have any great depressions, but I've been incredibly vigilant about exercise and, and diet and medication and not drinking or smoking weed or anything like that. So it's been, yeah, thank you, thank you. Medication scares me. Medication frightens me. Like my therapist is dying to get me on something, but I'm, I take uh, Buspirone, but it, which is so mild, it doesn't fuck with your brain at all. Like, it just scares me that my, I'll lose. I'm afraid of being too even. And okay. the, it, it scares you me to take You're it. afraid of losing creativity. Yeah, or just yeah. whatever it is that makes with me. With me, I wrote five minutes in a two and a half year depression where I was, I was hospitalized three times, um, and since then I've put out two hours. Right. Yeah. So it's it's not if if it's still if you are still creative, it's fine to not be on medication. But if you're dying in your head, you can't think because yeah. we spend so much time in our heads, and it, it can be because it also it's biological. It slows down your synapses and your your connections and things. So it's it's. There's something to consider if, if your if your output yeah. is reduced. I feel like a lot of creative people feel that way that the medication, yeah. like the the crazy, makes you creative. Yeah. So you can't but we're not numb all Pollock. that. Yeah. And look how Pollock ended up. Yeah. 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 Uh, how did he end up? Well, Kevin Pollock is having yeah. a good career, but uh, <laughs> and uh, but Jackson has more. Well, I think he killed himself. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But also, why is creativity more important than our happiness and That's true. Life? Right. That's a very oh, man, I didn't know that was going to get us. Hearing you just say that made me anxious. No kidding. Say it again? Hearing you say that just now it just made me anxious. 
Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. yeah, because I feel like if I'm, because I'm so identified. Yeah, but but we suffer so much for our art. Occasionally, we can let our art suffer so that we can so that we can improve. I mean, I can give you these sound bites all night. Yeah. Right? Your question. Yeah, Joey, you uh, you talked about wanting to make a memorable impression on the world. Uh, I'm wondering if you follow the uh, Rewatchables movie podcast. Uh, every week they give out the Joey Pants Award for the, <laughs> That's uh, right. for the actor in a movie that makes the greatest impression on the audience. Oh, you wow. did it, Dad! Oh, <laughs> Great. That's awesome! I never heard of it. Are you it's one a, of the three people that watch it? No, it's a huge, it's a huge podcast, right? With Bill Simmons and and his flunkies. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's huge. Yeah, the rewatchables. I, I gotta mean, get out yeah. there. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Um, I kind of want to circle back to everybody on the topic of uh, just showing emotion as children in front of your parents. Um, and especially if there's just a story that comes to mind, or especially I, for me, I know like public being like, it was okay to have emotions at home and like, but all of a sudden if we're in a different space, like there's just a different level of behavior expected, which seems somewhat pragmatic, but also I think can maybe get toxic in certain ways as well. So yeah. Yeah. My parents didn't, um, I, my dad was six eleven and a half. Right? He was a big dude, right? And uh, yeah, <laughs> wow. but wasn't a giant. He, he was like, I'm not seven feet tall. Like, All right, so. <laughs> <laughs> and as big as he was, I think. And Gary, I expect you probably uh, experienced this. And even we were talking about Shaquille O'Neal. People that are literally physical presences, they, I think. Throughout their lives, they have to make themselves small. The same way, like my daughters are tall, and we always, we always uh, made sure I never wanted them to walk hunched over because the top society tells them, "Oh, well, that's Amazon," you know. So anytime, anytime when my kids were coming up and they were like in the ninety-fifth percentile, the tallest people, you know, in their in their classes, and someone. People don't mean to say things like, oh, wow, you're so big. So you have to chase with, but you're beautiful and you're intelligent. You know, all of that, right? <laughs> and so because my dad was big, he never he never imposed this whole idea of, like, I guess, what people consider toxic masculinity where you're not allowed to cry. You you, you also couldn't. I mean, he didn't want you crying about everything, you know? So it wasn't like, oh, you're going to be a little bitch, you know what I mean? <laughs> um but my parents never, I mean, oftentimes if I was crying, it was because I did something wrong and the belt was coming, you know. But they never, my, I never felt, or at least with my family, that if I showed emotion that I was going to uh, have to face some sort of negative consequences outside amongst your friends, you know. I think your friends projected that on you because they might not have had the same uh you know, fortunate type of parents that that would just allow you to be. You know, I think I I was listen to y'all. I was I was just the weird kid that would sit playing with Star Wars figures in a corner, and they were like, "All right, well, let it. He's not getting in trouble." You know, and 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 my older brother was more. You know, he 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 was the firstborn, so he got to you know challenge and test the waters. And 
watching him made me say, okay, that's what I'm not going to do because I want to get, get in trouble, you know. Um, but I never, I looking back, I never had family that, that made me feel like there was something wrong with uh, showing your emotion. I, um, yes, that's good to not have a family like that. I also didn't have that family. Like my parents would always want me to show emotion, but for some reason, if I was feeling sad, I would lock myself in the bathroom, cry, 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 wipe it away, go downstairs. Everything's fine. I couldn't tell you why I did that. I mean, my therapist might be able to, but, um, yeah, it was just something I put on myself. So I think it's, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people probably do put that on themselves. Maybe it's because of society or even your friends. You don't want to look like the weak one or everything's fine. But, um, no, that's definitely, I mean, even now I still do it. And I have a podcast about mental health and not doing that and like talking about your feelings. But it's just, it's a learned behavior that's really hard to, to break. I, when I cry, I feel normal. Like if I, I'm a blubberer watching like TV. I'm yeah. the fucking worst. Um, but I feel like, oh, you are connected to something. That you do feel these things. This is not crazy. So I don't mind that part. I don't want to do it in front of a lot of people. But like if I'm watching something and I cry. Like I don't feel bad about that. I'm like, yeah, it feels like a normal, healthy thing yeah. to feel watching this. It always feels good to cry. Like it, it really does. It feels wonderful once it's really, done. You know, yeah. even, even anger, but any expression yeah. of because you're sitting on it. So if you're sitting on it, with me, as I recall as a kid, I would cry first because uh, the anger, I, I, was, I was forcing the anger down. So it would, it, would, it would manifest itself in tears, and then the anger would come out. Mm. And that's where I think, in a lot of ways, uh, show business saved my life because it was, I got into an acting class at 18 years old, and I was encouraged to have those feelings. You know, it was the kind of training that I had and, and using historical moments in my life, uh, what they called effective memory, where you could actually build a, a war chest of emotion so that if you were in a play and uh, on the eighth performance you didn't feel it, you could sublimate <coughs> Historic feelings uh, that that got you pissed off, or whatever, whatever the, the the play called for, the logical continuous behavior of a character according to the given circumstances is what the teacher said. And uh, what? <laughs> good teacher, you remember it. Yeah. Uh, but that but that feeling of of being able to use that, and actually when I made my the documentary, I, I was at McLean Hospital, the largest brain hospital in the right. world, and I asked the doctor because of my training. Did I make myself nuts? Mm. And he said, actually, you sublimated all of these unresolved emotions and used them and you created, you created a craft that probably saved you in a lot of ways. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention that we discount is, is Dean was talking earlier about how good it feels to make strangers laugh. But there's this other thing we get and the acting class reminds me because when I lived in LA, I couldn't get on stage. I joined in an acting class. It was like four nights a week. It was my entire community. And beyond learning how to act and everything like that, I was getting out of the house and I had friends, friends who were striving for the same thing. They were theater people and, and, going to the comedy cellar or Gotham comedy club and hanging out with the other comedians. It's, it's literally an antidepressant that my, my doctor always says, 
the at the very least get out of the house yeah. be with be with people drag yourself if you have to and it's yeah. and it's and it's free yeah yeah that's the one thing about depression clinical depression is it wants you to isolate yes it wants you alone it wants to kill you yes and uh and and the idea of walking you know being able uh, dick cabot i remember him saying that when he was at his worst, it was as if he said, if there was a, an elixir that was just seven yes. feet away, and all I needed to do was drink that elixir, and this depression would go away, I couldn't get to yeah. the table. No energy. Yeah. Yeah. No energy. So the idea of, of and that's, that's the cool thing about getting help, asking for help, is you learn how to regulate and manage your disease. Because for me, it was, before that, it was sex, it was fame, it was booze, it was drugs, you know, and it, and it, and then I never got to the secrets because I was as sick as the secrets I was holding down. And so I kept those secrets and I just changed from one thing to the next, never getting better. Um, and the one thing I, I want to close with is like, I was, I was in our house and we, we live on a pond and it was snowing in this beautiful pond. And I come from like the projects I lived on. Well, we were on welfare broke, degenerate gamblers, my parents. And here I was, and I was thinking like, I'm, I'm looking at this beautiful thing. And this is what I wanted my whole life. And now I've got it. And why do I want to kill myself? Mm. You know, why do I want to die? And I wasn't alarmed by it. I was fascinated that that was the true feeling that I wanted to end my life. And that's when I asked for help. Thank God. Are there any more questions? The entire presentation that you, you're pr providing for us, uh, do you feel it's more cathartic for you, or is, is it your way of trying to tell everybody in, in, who's listening that if you need help, you should get it, or some combination thereof? For me, I always, I always wanted to find the humor in the sadness, right? So even, I, I took a lot of hits with my documentary because they said it was too funny. It wasn't <laughs> like you didn't have the sad music. Um, that was one. But for me, these these conversations always feel better afterwards. Yeah. I like making fun of it. Like I, I it's I do. I really do. I love I love not giving it this this respect because uh, it's the thing that makes me able to to live with it is to is to speak about it. I like when people make fun of me for it, like my friends, when I'm at the comedy cellar and I'm getting shredded by people, it really makes me feel great. Like <laughs> it's, a, it's a healthy feeling. It feels really good. So I, I like to, to mock it uh, and to talk about it. And everyone here gets it. But on stage in front of a regular audience talking about suicidal thoughts or any of that stuff, there's always a few people that are like, oh, like, it's good to hear that. It's good to hear that publicly because a lot of times they don't, they don't hear that in their daily lives. So yeah, I like making fun of it. It is the fun. Yeah. But the clapping, the clapping hurts. Yeah. I, th I think I feel so good and so grateful that I want to let everybody know who's not feeling great that there's, there's the other side to this and it's, it's a worthwhile pursuit. It is, is, isn't it good to, you know, to that going back to us just shredding, right? It, it also, 
just humanizes it and, and makes it more universal to let everyone know that we're, we're all everybody in this room is going through some sort of struggle. Yeah. Everybody that sees or hears this podcast um, can reflect. You know, that's that's the beauty of, uh, of of art and creativity is that you know you you want to address things that might not might not come out you know at the office or in in regular everyday activities, but. I I love when when comics talk about uh, you know what what the rest of the world deems as as uh, assorted or, or or dirty little secrets because it's like everyone's trying to fit fit into this perfect uh, you know specter of what what reality is but reality is all of it you know so let let it all hang out and, and then, because then it takes the pretense off. Of it, you know? How did you guys deal with? Uh, the beginning pressures of your career, like you've all turned out fairly successful. So how did you deal moderately successful? Well, number one, we dodged motherfuckers saying fairly successful. Right over my head. I, I, I got to wait for nine people to say no before I get a shot. <laughs> Sir. We have one here. Go ahead. Thank you so much for um, bringing, your, bringing your hearts here for us. I work in primary care. I'm a primary care nurse practitioner. And I'm wondering, like, what, if, if you have any moments that were especially tender with your care team or especially ouchie with your care team like what would you how, how can we show up for the comics in our that show up for in our offices man i i remember there was this nurse who wheeled me down to get ect three times a week and man i was going to have this thing that could lobotomize me and yet i was i looked forward to seeing her every day and she was so nice and asked me how I was doing and I, I remember one night I went to the emergency room because I was I was um suicidal and she was there and I just started crying it was like seeing a, a, a long lost sister or something like that it was it was amazing so I I um and there was a woman with a British accent named Anne and the, the everybody makes the psych ward out to be one flew of the cuckoo's nest yeah. and it's ordinary it's it's <laughs> like it's it's uh I mean, yes, it's a last resort. You don't want to go there because you're, you're feeling out of it for one day, but it is not something to be terrified of and, and, uh, put off if you need it. Yeah. Suicidal thoughts almost feel like, uh, a salute. Like it's a weird, like when something feels hopeless or insurmountable, suicide is like, okay, there's the solution. At least that's there. Yeah. Like it, it's always this, uh, I always thought of it as this in case of emergency break glass answer to whatever was bothering me that I, I, you know, hopefully wouldn't take, but it was almost something comforting about it being in the distance. Like, yeah, that's there if I ever need it. So now I can kind of deal with what I have to deal with. But I always found it comforting. Yeah. Unless you're on a ledge and it's windy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think it's great that you asked that question because I think a lot of people don't uh, take in consideration uh, performers whenever we're in situations because it's a lot of um, happy faces, and it is not. And to address your question about the struggles, 
it there are levels to moving in any business and show business and there's a lot of people that are still trying to get to even fairly you know what i mean and they're not doing anything and we know a lot of people who are really talented very funny and they may not get a break or someone may not see you know they just don't get the opportunity and that's where a lot of the danger zone is as much as the danger zone is for the people who are who go, oh, I'm here and this is not what I want. It's a lot of people who still have not gotten there that think that they're missing so much because they're not there that we lose at the ground floor of trying to make it in this business. Um, I really want to thank you. My brother here, we're from Miami. My brother here said, you just got in, you just got in, come meet me at the comedy club. Great comedy club. I had no idea <laughs> what was happening, but I'm really very thankful because I'm the mother of, of a child who's a grown man now with mental illness. And my whole life has been focused on nature versus nurture. As the mother, what did I do wrong? And I've been, you know, logging myself for a long time. And he's doing fairly well. But, so what I want to ask you is a, a couple of things. One, one of the things that I've heard along my journey with him is that depression is anger turned inward. And I'd like to know what you think about that. And also what I'd like to... I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I didn't hear Yes, that depression is anger toward inward. Um, I finally kind of broke free when later in life we went to a very, very good shrimp. He was here in the city. And, you know, when I was going through my craziness of how I was feeling, he said, well, you know, if you had had a different mother, he could have been far, far worse. Yes, yes. And that just, wow, wiped the, the, the slate clean for me. So my question for you is, since my focus is nature versus nurture, the whole time you've been up on stage, I've been wondering if maybe being on stage is a way for you to break free of your nurture, to break free of your environment, that when you're on stage, you're in a different environment. You create your own environment. You create your own fantasy environment. And I wonder if that, um, if that might have helped you in some way. Well, I just, let me start, because I'm a woman. Right? <laughs> some of you sounded unsure. <laughs> I think uh, you said you didn't know you what was going in here tonight. And you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big believer in God and, and destiny and, and th like how amazing you came to this experience and you have that backstory about your son and these questions and you sort of getting answers about what's happening. Um, you know, listen, we all come in as innocent beings into this world and then whatever our environment is obviously, you know, has to reflect who we sort of have an opportunity to become, right? And then there's the people that are in our lives that get to take care of us. Some people are unfortunate when they have also imbalances in their mind to have people who are not aware or don't care or shame them. And your son was fortunate to have you. So I'm glad that, you know, his psychiatrist said that and, and all of that. The other thing is also like, there's such a spectrum with so many things, except we don't think of a spectrum when it comes to mental health or mental illness. So what happens is 
when people are depressed, they go, well, I'm not crazy, right? They go, I'm not like a sociopath. I'm <laughs> not like psychotic. And it's like, oh, this all is, you know, we have to really change how people view mental uh, unwellness, right? And sort of when we call it an illness, people think it's something that we have to step away from and that we can't look and that we have to fix. And there really is nothing. We may have to learn how to cope with being in this world, but our minds, no matter what, they're still beautiful the way they function. It's just that other people look and go, I don't know what's going on. Like I talked to myself until I was 10, you know, and you know, my grandmother did a lot of praying, you know, a lot of holy oil on my head. I almost had a jerry curl. Like it was a lot of like getting God involved and things like that. But that's who I am. And so when I was able to embrace it, it's fine. It's fine if I still talk to myself. I talk to my cats now, so it doesn't seem so weird, but they ain't listening. Um, you know, but it's I've learned how to function in this world. And, you know, my mother has asked the same questions, like especially with this nervous tick, she thinks she did something to cause me to constantly be on edge. And it's just like, no, whenever I have anxiety and a lot of stuff is going on, I get anxious and I start to do that. And, you know, I was on the Merida Vera show for a year and a half with her every day. And they'd be in my ear going, eyes, and I'd have to go <laughs> like that. You know, I just learned how to cope. So I know I'm all over the place, but I just wanted to hug you kind of with this answer. Because I really feel like God did so much to put you in this place and put him in his outfit so you can see this. You know, we're having an amazing it's night. Your crazy. brother just got here. Lower your expectations. Nothing else like this is going to happen in the city, okay? <laughs> Thank I you. wanted to, the question about uh, uh, patients in the hospital. When when you mentioned uh, Cuckoo's Nest, when when I made uh, uh, No Kidding Me Too, the the movie in two thousand nine, I think. You know, when you make a documentary, it doesn't cost a lot of money, but getting licenses for stuff—that's where all the money goes. And and I reached out to the industry because I wanted to show a clip from Cuckoo's Nest. The uh, um, the ETC, yeah, 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 yeah. McMurphy. Yeah, I wanted to show yeah. Patton hitting, 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 hitting the soldiers for crying. Yes, I wanted to show all of these movies that demonize emotion and and dramatize reality, like because that doesn't happen. We, we saw. I actually interviewed the doctor where they made the movie when flew over the cuckoo's nest, who explained in a shorter uh, um, a, a short we made with him. He played the doctor in the movie, and uh, and he insisted that if they were going to shoot at his hospital, in um, that 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 the patients would work, there would be extras, there would be grips and gaffers. Wow. Um, but but he said that that what they depicted in Montreal over the Cuckoo's Nest was something that happened uh, uh, in the 30s. Wow. Not in not in '62 when the movie takes place. But the interesting thing is. Sal's Dance, Michael Douglas, Jack Nicholson, all of the people, 20th Century Fox, they all gave me the movie uh, Rights of Free. This wow. is a favorite nation deal. Everybody had to give it away for nothing, otherwise everybody got got paid. And Amy Winehouse gave us the song Rehab before wow. she died when she recipes. Wow. Wow. So it's like everybody in this room has someone they love 
know someone who has personally experienced some kind of emotional diseasiness. And, uh, and th this conversation makes us feel left. Hey well, guys, thank you everybody. For yes. Thank you. Thanks Your intimacy with us tonight is just fantastic. We really appreciate it. Yeah. I love you, Dan. I love you, Daddy. <laughs> We'd like to thank our guests for this episode, Yamanika Saunders, Jim Norton, Dean Edwards, Gary Goldman, and Regina DeChico. No Kidding Me Too was created by Joe Pantoliano and Daniela Pantoliano. This episode was produced by Robert Mathers at Exit 30 Media with support from Jason and Salako and Gary Krantz at Krantz Media Group. Special thanks to Chris Mazzelli and the awesome staff at Gotham Comedy Club in New York City, Mark Krantz and Allison Gobel at Mark Krantz Productions, Dora Bloom at TalkShoe, and Max Felder. And hey, if you haven't already, please like and follow No Kidding Me Too wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>